you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. I hope all of you had a good Christmas. Uh, we are reminded and celebrate such glorious truths during the Christmas season, and I hope those have become more real to you during this Christmas season. But if we're honest, even as we celebrate and are reminded of those glorious truths that we celebrate during this time of year, often the world around us that we see doesn't really seem to match up with those promises. We hear things like the call to worship, Luke chapter 2, the angels saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. But we look around and we don't really see a whole lot of peace on the earth. There's not a lot of goodwill to men. We sing things like, oh, holy night, and about how we have a Savior, and about in his name all oppression shall cease. But we look around and there still seems to be a lot of oppression in the world. If we're honest, there's a gap between the glorious truths that we celebrate and are reminded of at Christmas and our practical everyday living of life. And I'm so excited about Revelation chapter 12 because it explains to us why there is this gap between the glorious promises and truths that we celebrate and the world that we see around us. So be listening for the answer to that question, if a Savior was born, then what happened to peace on earth? Where's the goodwill to men? How come there's all this oppression? Listen for the answer to that as we come to Revelation chapter 12. I'll read the first 12 verses and then the last verse of the chapter in verse 17. Hear now God's word. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night have been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. 
But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Then verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us. I pray that you would give us ears to hear your word. I pray that you would open our minds and give us understanding and that you would use these strange visions in heaven to explain to us the gap we feel in your glorious truths and promises that we celebrate this time of year and the reality of life that we live on a daily basis. I pray that you would use these visions to strengthen our faith, that you would use these things to embolden your church, and that you would use these visions in order to help your people overcome the powers in this world. And Father, I ask that you'd be willing to do all of this, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher, For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We often think the Christmas story is only found in Matthew and in Luke. You know, Luke 2, we read some of it today, the angels and the shepherds and no room at the end and the decree from Caesar Augustus. Or we think it's uh, the rest of it's in Matthew 2 where we read about the wise men. And those two places certainly tell us the Christmas story. But Revelation chapter 12 is the Christmas story as well. In fact, I hope it might become your very favorite place where we read the Christmas story. Let's look at it together and let me help you to see that. I want to look first at the characters that are in this story. And then second, what is the story itself? What is the plot line? What's going on? Let's look at those two things together. First, who are the characters in this story? Notice that there are two signs at the beginning of this, okay? And a sign is something that points to something else. So as we look at these two signs, realize that it's not the sign themselves that we need to be concerned with. It's what they point to. Okay? So let's look at these two signs. The first sign in verse 1 is a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So the first sign is a woman. This language about the sun and moon and stars is reminiscent of Joseph's dream in Genesis 37. And we read in verse 2 where she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. This verse 2 echoes the Old Testament as well. I think of Isaiah 26 and verse 17 where we're told that the people of God cry out in pain as a woman about to give birth. Or, probably more importantly, Isaiah 66 and verse 7 where we're told that the people of God give birth to a son who ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. So this woman in labor in the Old Testament is at least twice referred to as the people of God. So if you know your Old Testament, which you need to know to interpret, if somebody's interpreting Revelation, they're not using the Old Testament, they're not looking at it the right way, okay? And so what this is showing is this woman in labor, the folks are immediately thinking, Joseph dreamed Genesis 37, a woman in labor is the people of God, Isaiah 26, Isaiah 66, 
And I think that fits the context, that this would be the people of God. You see in verse 6 that she is protected by God for 1,260 days. And if you weren't with us last week, we did the exegetical work to show that that 1,260 days is the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. We saw that last week in Revelation chapter 11. So the people of God would be protected, the church would be protected from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. But really the clincher's in verse 17. Did you see that? In verse 17, the dragon makes war against the woman. He's enraged at her, and he makes war against the rest of her offspring. So one offspring's the child. What's the rest of her offspring? Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So who is it that produces people who hold to the testimony of Jesus and who obey God's commands. It's the church. It's the people of God. So the first sign, the woman, is the people of God through whom the Savior of the world comes. Now in verse 3, there's another sign, and we get to the second character in this story. And the sign is an enormous red dragon. That's the sign. What does the sign point us to? This is one of those places in Revelation that's really a lot of fun because the text just tells you what the red dragon is. Why didn't he do that all the time? Well, a lot of times he does. We just don't know our Old Testament very well. But look in verse 9. You see we're told who the red dragon is. Verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent, the one who was in the Garden of Eden who deceived the first man and first woman, called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So the second sign, the second character in the story is the devil, is Satan, the serpent of old. So we have the people of God, we have another sign, an enormous red dragon pointing us to the devil, and then there's a third character. Look at verse 5. The woman gives birth to a son, a male child. Notice that the child is not a sign. He is not pointing to something else. He just is, all right? We're just taking the text as it comes to us. So the people of God produce this male child who is born, and it says, who will rule the nations with an iron rod, right, is the language. And, of course, the original audience would immediately think Psalm Two, thank you, James Thigpen, for reading that for us today because that helps us to understand that the one who rules the nations with an iron rod, the one who that is, is the Lord's anointed, his Christ, his Messiah, the one who God sets on as sets up as the king of Zion, the one who God calls his son. So it's God's son, it's the Messiah, it's the Christ, it's Jesus who is born. See, this is a Christmas story. The child is born, and the, 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 uh, the dragon is there to devour him at his birth. That's consistent with what we read in Matthew 2, right? Where King Herod kills all the babies that are born in Bethlehem because he doesn't want the threat to his throne. And so King Herod, a tool of Satan, is trying to kill the Christ child even when he is still a baby. Yet, 
in Semitic fashion that kind of just tells you the beginning and the end, and you're supposed to assume everything in the middle. He's born, he's almost killed, and then he's snatched up into heaven. And of course, Jesus ascends into heaven. You can read about that in Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1. And that reference to the beginning and the end is supposed to make us think about all of his life and work, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection on the cross, and then his ascension into heaven. So the child is Jesus. There's another character in this story, though. Did you see the other character in verse 17? Look at who is talked about. Then the dragon, that's Satan, was enraged at the woman, that's the church, and the dragon goes off to make war against whom? The rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. If you profess faith in Christ, that's you. That, that's me, right? Those are the members of the church that have come after Christ. When I read this before, I was reminded of when I was growing up. My grandparents used to come and stay with us at Christmas time, and my grandfather would sleep on the bottom bunk, and I got to sleep on the top bunk during that time. And he used to tell me stories when we were going to sleep at night. Maybe it was just to get me to shut up and stop talking so that I would go to sleep. But he would tell me stories. And whenever he would tell a story, he had a series of stories he would tell about Super Scott, which, of course, I identified with myself. And whenever he would tell me stories in which I was a character, I was really interested in those stories, and I wanted to hear them. And so I would be quiet, and I would listen, and I would be very attentive. Listen, you are a character in this story. That's what verse 17 says. So we should read this with great interest. This is not theoretical. This is not philosophical revelation way out there, weird interpretive schemes. This is us. This is our life. This is where we live. So let's give our attention here because we are characters in this story. Well, what's the story? And by the way, the story answers the question of why is there this gap between the glorious truths that we celebrate at Christmas and our everyday lives that we live? Where's the peace on earth? Where's the goodwill toward men? Where's the end of all oppression? Why hasn't that happened even though we celebrate that with the coming of Christ at Christmas? The story answers the question. You can read in verse 7 where there's a war in heaven and the dragon is overcome, and he's thrown out of heaven. So think about that. To an Old Testament audience, people familiar with the Old Testament, they're saying, listen, Satan is not in heaven accusing us in front of God the Father any longer. You see him do that at the beginning of Job. You can read it. Read in Zechariah 3. He goes and makes accusations against Joshua, the high priest. And so if he's thrown out of heaven, these people are immediately saying, the accuser, the evil one, is no longer in heaven before the throne of God making accusations. Why? Because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Because of what the child has accomplished on the earth, the devil is thrown out of heaven. And so heaven rejoices. Yay! It's a perfect paradise, right? But what does verse 12 say at the end? Rejoice heavens, but woe to the earth. Woe on the earth. Why? Because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Why are things so broken and messed up? 
Because the dragon has been thrown out of heaven and he now wreaks havoc on the earth. He's furious. He pursues the people of God. He makes war against the people of God. That's why there's a gap between peace on earth, goodwill toward men, oppression ceasing, and the glorious truths that we celebrate at Christmas. Now, a couple of takeaways about this. A couple of things we need to keep in mind. Some implications. Number one, keep in mind who the real enemy is. Okay, keep in mind who the real enemy is. I mean, the story tells us, right, that the dragon is angry that he can't get to Jesus. He's lost that battle. He can't get to the Christ child who's been taken up into heaven. He's angry about that. He's been kicked out of heaven because of the finished work of the child, the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so what does he do? He goes after what is most precious to Jesus. That's the way he he attacks him. That's the way he makes war against him. So listen, no, first, you as the people, you are dear to Christ Jesus. That's why you experience suffering, because the evil one makes war against you to get to Jesus. That's why there's a lack of peace, a lack of goodwill. That's why there's oppression. If we belong to God, then we have a bullseye on our back. We are a target of the evil one. That's why we continue to see things broken and messed up in our world. The evil one wants to deceive you. We'll talk about that more in a second. But right now, just know he wants to deceive you, so don't be fooled. Keep in mind who the real enemy is, because here's what happened. Here's what I see. We, as 21st century Americans, tend to focus on the physical, what we can see. And there's this whole unseen spiritual world that Revelation 12 has shown us and pulls back the curtain and shows to us. But we forget about that, and we're deceived, and we tend to focus on the things around us. And I hear it when people come and talk to me. They say, you're not going to believe what my spouse did. You're not going to believe what my kids did. You're not going to believe what my parents did, what my boss did. You're not going to believe what my professor did. And we get real focused on the physical things that we can see. And we lose sight of the things, of the spiritual things, the unseen spiritual things. And the evil one deceives us by making us think that that other person is the enemy. And we are deceived when we think this way. Listen, hear the word of the Lord today from Ephesians 6 and verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But our struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's who the enemy is, okay? The enemy is not your dad. The enemy is not your kid. The enemy is not your spouse or your boss or your professor, That's ultimately not, those folks might be, maybe they're being used as tools of the evil one, but keep in mind who the real enemy is. And look at the practicality of this. When we keep in mind who the real enemy is, and we have this problem that we're arguing back and forth over, keeping in mind who the real enemy is allows us to walk around and get on the same side and say, this person's not the enemy. We want to address this problem together. But this person is not the enemy. We don't work. And sometimes we can work with other Christians, we tend to be able to work with them. Even when the other person is not a believer or they're being deceived and uses a tool of the evil one, we at least at that point 
can extend grace and mercy to them, right? They're being deceived. They think I'm the enemy, and I'm not the enemy. They're being deceived. by the, When we can extend grace and mercy, and it changes the way that we react to that person over a conflict. Very practical. Keep in mind who the real enemy is. Second, keep a biblical perspective on brokenness. <laughs> I don't know how you respond, but I look around and I see how broken and messed up the world is, and I just get depressed. I think... God's abandoned us, or I think evil is winning, and I just see things that are broken and messed up, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I, I just, you know, God's nowhere to be found, the devil is wreaking havoc, you know, when is the end of all this? But keep a biblical perspective of broken, listen to what this says. What does verse 12 say? It says that our difficulties are not a sign that the devil is winning, right? Our difficulties are a sign that he knows he's been defeated and that his time is short, so he goes after us and does as much damage as he possibly can in the short time that he has left. Now, you may not understand that. I totally understand that because as a, as a kid, a spawn of Satan, a tool of Satan, I related to this. I've got a younger sister. I know some of you don't have sisters. But I might be doing something to her, or she might walk in and I'm doing so, I was doing something wrong, and I would hear that terrible thing that she would do. Mama! She'd call to get me in trouble. And at that point, I know I'm getting in trouble. So what do you do then? Well, I just do as much wrong as I possibly can, right? Because I'm going to get in trouble anyway. I mean, the punishment's already there. So I keep doing what I'm doing wrong, or if I'm picking on her, I make it worse, right? Because I'm going to get as many licks in as I can before I get in trouble because the punishment is going to be the same either way. I might as well get my money's worth or as much as I can get, right? I remember consciously thinking that. You're going to pay, right? If you're going to scream out, I'm going to get all that I can get. That's what the devil is doing. That's what we're told that he is doing here. But the difference is we know who wins in the end, we know that these are last-minute gasps of desperation, and it gives us hope and energy to move into broken and messed-up situations, to move toward broken and messed-up and difficult people, because we know our labor in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, down around verse 58, tells us that. That because we know God is at work, we know that he'll make all things right, we can wade into difficult situations. In fact, sometimes I think the devil believes the Bible more than we do. Sometimes I think he's got a better biblical perspective than what we do. Because think about it. He knows his time is short, so he's doing as much as he can in the short time that he has left. Why don't we do that? It's not much longer. We don't have to push much longer. We don't have to fight much longer. Why don't we do that? We know our side will win. We know the time is short. Why don't we cling to Jesus a little harder? Why don't we work harder to make disciples, which is the main job that God has given us to do? Why don't we pursue that even harder because we know the time is short? You do know that's the only thing that keeps Jesus from coming back and making all things right and bringing peace on the earth and goodwill toward men and ending all oppression, right? There are those that are his that have not yet come into the family. And the only thing 
that keeps all of this from coming to an end is waiting on those family members to be adopted into our family, waiting on those disciples to come to Christ. We don't know who they are, oh, but that we would be about using this short time that we have left to move out into difficult situations to see people come to Christ. Two other thoughts I want to give you before we leave. I don't know if you've been following the story that you're a part of, but it basically says there's an enormous red dragon who's making war against you, right? So I want to talk about two things before we leave. I want to talk about, one, how does he make war against us? Let's recognize, you know, it's spiritual. We can't see it. So let's talk, first of all, how is it that the enormous red dragon is making war against us, number one. And then number two, how do we overcome the enormous red dragon? Let's talk about those two things before we go. First, how does the enormous red dragon make war against us? Number one, he deceives us. You see that in verse 9, right? The great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, or the Satan, the ones who leads the whole world astray. The ESV says he's the deceiver of the whole world. John chapter 8, then around verse 44, Jesus says he is a liar and the father of all lies, that there's no truth in him, that when he lies, he speaks his native language. You think Jesus is meek and mild? Read him in John 8, 44. He is, wow. He's a liar and the father of lies. He has no truth in him. That's what Jesus says about our foe. So we need to understand that there is a power at work in the universe that deceives us. Now, we don't have to have the devil to sin, right? We've got enough in our own flesh that we will go astray on our own. All the more reason we need to watch out for the one who deceives us, right? I think about this reference to the ancient serpent, the one in the garden, because you can see how he works and how he deceives there. Remember? He come, remember the story? He's more crafty than the creatures. He comes to Eve and he says what? What's the first thing he asks? Did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? The first thing he always does is he makes us question God's word. Did God really say? If he can get us to do that, boy, we're on the road to being deceived, right? Did God really say marriage is only between one man and one woman? Did God really say sex is only in the context of Did God really say there's only a man and a woman and no other genders? Did God really say the? When we begin to question the word of God, we are on the path toward deception. Of course, the woman answers him and corrects him and says, no, we can eat from any tree in the garden, but there's just this one tree in the middle. We can't eat that. Because if we eat it, we'll die. What does he say then? You're not going to die, minimizing the consequences of disobedience. You're not going to die. God knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll know good and evil. That's the second thing he does. He, he, he makes you question God's goodness. He, you question God's word, and he has you question, God's holding back on you. This thing that he's holding back is a good thing. And here are the ways that it's good. You can know good and evil. You can be like God. You can't trust him. He's holding something that's really good. Warning, you are on the road to deception when that happens. When you question God's word, when you question God's goodness. And then the kicker for me. Notice it's so subtle. 
Eve does not immediately reject what God says, nor does she immediately embrace what the serpent says. But what does she do? She says, I will decide for myself. I'll take what God says. I'll take what the serpent says. I'm going to weigh the two of them, and I will be the judge. Oh, we are so deceived in our self-sufficiency and our self-reliance, thinking that we can do things on our own. You know what Jesus said you could do without him? John 15, verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what we can do without him, nothing. Nothing of any kind of eternal value. Nothing of any kind of goodness. No spiritual fruit is produced without him. We are so self-sufficient and self-reliant, and we think we can do things on our own. We were decorating for Christmas this year, and we were moving things around, and we found in this, this grate, we found a snake skin where he had shed his skin in our house. And you know, that freaks me out, right? I can't stand that. Somebody said to the Christmas Eve service, when you were reading Genesis 3.15, what if that snake had come out from the fireplace? That would have been kind of a neat special effects, right? But we just assume that we lock our doors and we close the windows and we're protected. We think that we can protect our family. We think we can provide for ourselves. And then a family in our church loses their job right at Christmas. We think we can protect ourselves. We think we can provide for ourselves. And we're totally dependent on God. A group of missionaries from Africa came to Covenant Seminary when I was there, and they were talking to us about their ministry and about all the things, and they were in it by being thankful for what they had gotten from the seminary and from the West and all that they had been given so that they could be put it into practice. In the Q&A time, some of the students asked, it's so great what you've taken from us. What can we learn from you? You come here from another culture. You have eyes that we don't have. What, is it, what can you give us to help us be better? And at first they deferred, they just said, oh, no, 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 that's not what we're here to do. And we pressed them and said, no, 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 please, please tell us. You know what they said? Your self-reliance, your confidence in yourself. The example he gave was this. You walk out of this room and he said, you turn the knob and you just expect clean, drinkable water to come out of the fountain. You don't give a thought about it. Where we come from, people get up every day and pray to God that they'll be able to provide water for their family. You're so self-sufficient, you're so self-reliant because of your affluence, because of your efficiency, because of the developed nature of your country. You don't look to God for things. They said even in the developed parts of our country, you can go to the water fountain and sometimes you turn it and no water comes out. Sometimes you turn it and dirty water comes out. And if an American does that, we get mad and we want to know who to be held responsible for this and who's going to fix it and how long is it going to take. And he said in our country, that's just kind of part of it. But in our country, we also see spiritual and believe in spiritual warfare that takes place behind the physical things that we see and taste and touch. We're much quicker to go to the Lord in prayer because we're dependent on him for protection and provision. So let me just ask you, how much do you pray? <laughs> That's a good indication of how self-reliant you are. If you can go weeks without praying, that means you think you can go weeks without God. Think about it. When do we pray when something's bigger than what we can handle? Somebody gets cancer, we got to pray about that, right? Somebody loses their job, we don't know where the next job is, then we'll pray about that. 
But we live our lives from day to day in our self-sufficiency and our self-reliance, thinking that we don't need God, and we are deceived when we think that way. It's part of the war against us. He deceives us. He also accuses us. Do you see that in verse 10? The loud voice from heaven says, Now have come the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of our Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night, they've been hurled down. So he's no longer before God in heaven. But Satan has been cast down. The word Satan actually means accuser or adversary. And the accuser is in our midst. He's not in heaven anymore. He is on earth. And he has opposed us, so he accuses us day and night. He accuses us of the things that we've done. He accuses us of the things that, 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 that we are ashamed of, that bring us guilt. He accuses us of not being worthy of God's love. He accuses us. Maybe you've heard the voice before. Maybe you've heard the voice. You're a horrible father. You're a terrible spouse. You're not worthy of any kind of love. After what you've done, how could you expect your family to love or accept you? Who do you think you are? I hear it when I prepare to preach. I hear the voice that says this to me. After what you did, after what you said, you're going to stand up and preach the word of God to people. Tell them how they should live when you don't live that way yourself. It's one of the reasons I pray every week and say, Lord, use the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher to combat that voice that I hear. Do you hear the voice? There are some of you here today and you are afraid to come near to God. You're afraid to lift your eyes in prayer because you feel too dirty. You feel like you're not worthy to come. Listen, those accusations are from the evil one. That kind of shame comes from him. So how do we overcome the evil one? How do we overcome his deception? How do we overcome his accusations? We overcome, verse 11 tells us, they overcame how? By the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb empowers us. How does that happen? Well, I got to tell you, the accuser's half right. The best lies always have a kernel of truth. You have sinned. You have done things that are wrong. You have done things that should bring shame and reproach on you. But listen, that's only half the truth. The other half is the good news of the gospel, the blood of the Lamb, right? Romans 5, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're surprised by our sin. He's not surprised. He knows all of your sin that you've ever committed or will commit in the future and was willing to die for you. God, knowing your sin, sent his son into this world to pay the price. We are overcome by the blood of the lamb. His blood covers our sin. His, his blood pays the penalty that our sin deserves. His blood cleanses us of our sin. His blood gives us power over sin so that tomorrow does not have to be like yesterday because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. When you're accused, when you hear that voice, remember the blood of the Lamb. What is it in your past? What is it that you wouldn't want anybody to ever know about you? Listen to me. God gave his son for you knowing that. 
Jesus was willing to die knowing that's true of you. You are dear to him, and it's why the evil one attacks you. We overcome by knowing that God is not surprised for our sin, but gave the blood of his son first, and we overcome by the blood of the lamb. Number two, we overcome by our testimony. Do you see that? They overcame by the, word of the, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. What's the word of their testimony? We've seen testimony referred to a few times in Revelation. It's their story of how the blood of the lamb helps them. That's what it is. It's not just enough to know that the blood of the lamb helps us to overcome, but we got to learn to tell that story. That's how we overcome pain and suffering in a broken and messed up world. Let me give you a couple of examples. Here are some ways we've learned to tell the story here. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, right? God made all things good. Things are broken and messed up because of the fall, because we rebelled against God. But God was not content to abandon his world and his people. And so he sent his son, who by his perfect life and sacrificial death has paid the price for sin and is beginning the process of making all things new. And a day is coming that he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes and he's going to make everything right. Why is that important? Why is it important to tell that story? One of my highlights of this past year is one of our members of this church I saw on Facebook where he was processing the death of a loved one, and he told that story. He said death was not in the world when God created it because he made all things good. This suffering and death that I've experienced in a loved one came because of our rebellion against God, because, because the world is corrupted by our not living life the way God designed it to be lived. But I have hope for my loved one because Jesus came into the world and died for our sin and was raised from the dead, conquering sin and death. And a day is coming that there will be no more death or crying or pain. That's learning to tell the story in a way that strengthens us in difficult situations. That's what it looks like. That's why we learn those things. You're going to have a conversation with somebody this Christmas. You're going to have a conversation at the water cooler where they're talking about some bad things that are happening. Use that story. It's our word of testimony of God, how God has helped us. Another way we've learned to say it. Jesus lived the life I should have lived and died the death that I should have died so that I can have a relationship with God. So when we're reminded of how we fall short, when we do fail as a parent, when we do fail as a child, when we do fail as a boss, we have to learn the word of testimony to say, hey, listen, I'm sorry, I blew it. And we have the freedom to say that. You know why? Because we can say, Jesus lived the life that I should have lived. He's the one that did this perfectly. That's where you need to place your hope. Don't hope in me because I will let you down. But he lived the life that I should have lived. He died the death that I should have died to pay for this sin so that I can have a relationship with God. Wow, do you have a relationship like that too? One more. How do we learn to tell the story? Here in this place, a lot of times we say God loves broken and messed up people. God uses broken and messed up people. But God loves us too much to leave us in our brokenness and our mess. It's important to learn to tell the story that way. Because when we feel powerless, when we feel like we can't be used, when we've messed up again, it's so good to be able to say, God loves broken and messed up people. To come along with somebody who's, who's messed up and say, God loves broken and messed up people. And God uses broken and messed up. In fact, that's the only kind of people God uses because there aren't any other kind of people besides broken and messed up people. 
but he loves us too much to leave us in our brokenness and our mess. So let's move toward repentance. Let's move toward sanctification. We must learn to tell this story because we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Last thing, we overcome by not loving our lives so much that we shrink from death. You see that in verse 12? Listen, death is not the worst thing that can happen to us. Turning away from Jesus because we're afraid of death is the worst thing that can happen to us. Now, in this context, he's probably talking about martyrs, people who have given their life for their testimony, and some of us may be called to do that. But more likely in our culture, it it looks like this. It's daily dying to ourselves. Daily dying to what we want. Daily dying to our pleasures. Daily dying to what we want. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. That means daily die. Daily be executed and follow me. Isn't that what we're called to do with our spouses? He wants one thing, she wants another. We're to die to ourselves for the benefit of another. Isn't that what we should do for our kids? Oh, in this moment, all I want to do is watch the end of this game. In this moment, maybe all you want to do is stay here on the computer and veg out because it's the first quiet minute you've had all day. But what our kids need is somebody to tuck them in, somebody to process life with them, somebody to pray with them before they go to sleep. Oh, that we would be a people who do not shrink from death, that we don't love our lives so much that we're not willing to die to ourselves. Listen, God gave the Apostle John this vision to give to the church because we tend to focus on what we can see and we forget the unseen spiritual realities at work in this world. But Revelation pulls back the curtain and reminds us that there's a spiritual reality that we do not see. Oh, beloved, we're part of something so much bigger than ourselves. There's more to our struggle than what we can see. Our struggles are part of a bigger conflict between good and evil, and we are characters in and carriers of this story. And because the evil one has been overcome in heaven, he's causing trouble in this world on the earth. We must avoid his deception and his accusations, and we do so by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and by not loving our lives so much that we shrink from death. May God help us to do that in this place. Let's pray and ask him to do so. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the glorious promises that we celebrate during this season. Oh, Father, we feel that gap between the glorious promises and the glorious truths and the way life is lived on this earth. Meet us in that gap. I pray that you would be with us and that you would help us to not be deceived and not believe accusations. That we be a people who overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by our word of testimony, by not shrinking from death, 